Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. So today uh, is, as we've been reminded kind of really already, uh, today is Palm, uh, Palm Sunday. And uh, it's what sometimes is referred to uh, in Christian circles as Holy Week, the week uh, leading up to um, the time of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we celebrate at Easter, which we'll be celebrating next weekend. Um, but this is the day where we remember um, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And Jim alluded to that at the beginning of worship today. Um, and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah's exhortation and declaration, which went like this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This day we refer to as Palm Sunday. Why? Why do we refer to it as Palm Sunday? That's not a rhetorical statement. That's a question. I'm looking for a response. So why do we call today Palm Sunday? Herb. That's right. Thank you, Herb. Full marks for that one. Um, we are told in John's account, I mean, the triumphal entry, so-called, which is what this is referred to as Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, is recorded in all four Gospels. But the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic means seeing together. They're quite similar. John is a somewhat distinct Gospel. But in John's Gospel, he tells us something that we don't see in the synoptic Gospels, and it's from that that we derive the term Palm for Palm Sunday. In John 12, 13, he writes this, that they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now this episode in Jesus' life, which I've said is recorded in all four Gospels, and when something uh, has presence in Scripture, it's important, when it's replicated or repeated, and there's increased emphasis upon it, it speaks to the greater significance of what's being described. And this is in all four Gospels. So there's something very significant going on here in Jesus' life. And it really is the precursor to the lead up to his crucifixion on Good Friday. Now, it's an old story, and many of you in this room are very familiar with this story. You've read it hundreds of times. You've probably heard it preached on hundreds of times because it's such an, an important marker in the Christian calendar. It's always challenging when you're a preacher uh, to uh, take something that's very familiar to people uh, and bring something fresh um, so that you know there's something meaningful and new and uh, life-giving. Uh, for them to 
uh, find in what you're saying and to take away, and I hope that I'm going to be able to do that today. And if, if what I bring is not entirely new, and it probably won't be, because there's nothing new under the sun, um, then hopefully it'll be fresh and at least uh, perhaps a, uh, a different kind of perspective on the take of Palm Sunday. So in order to do that, I want to read Luke's version of this, and, uh, or at least a portion of it. And this is what Luke says about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He says, after Jesus had said this, and I'm not going to tell you what the this is that he'd said, but he'd said stuff. Uh, he went ahead uh, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, I want you to see that about halfway through that account, Luke refers to some unnamed, unnamed and seemingly minor characters in this story. Not the people that we would typically focus on. They are secondary players in the drama that's unfolding here that he's describing. And they are described as owners. It's these owners that I want to make the major focus of the message this morning. We're told little about the identity of the two disciples that Jesus um, told to go into the village and get the colt. We don't even know who they were. They were just two disciples. And Jesus said, I want you guys to go in and do this. We're told even less about the owners. All we're told about them is that they are owners of the cult that the disciples are sent to untie. We're given no other information about them. But I want to make them the focus of the message this morning. It's likely that these owners uh, of this cult lived either in Bethphage or Bethany, given that Jesus had come near to both of those towns. And Bethany may be a town that you're more familiar with in the story and life of Jesus because he had some close friends in Bethany and they were called Martha and Mary and a guy called Lazarus. And um, he had recently performed one of his greatest miracles in his public ministry in Bethany when he raised this guy Lazarus from the dead. Now, perhaps these owners, for all we know, had witnessed that. 
You know, they may have been there when that miracle took place. They may not have been. But at the very least, living in a relatively small town where a guy was raised from the dead and a man of influence and some significant wealth, it's unlikely they wouldn't have heard about what happened to Lazarus. Now, this might explain why these unnamed owners of this cult let Jesus' disciples just come, untie it, and take it away. I've done a little reading of some biblical scholars and commentators on this, just out of interest to see, because it's kind of a strange thing, isn't it? Somebody just comes up and takes your property, and, uh, you, you, know, and uh, you have this simple exchange, and they just let you go with it. And a lot of biblical scholars and commentators think that there could have been a variety of reasons for why they let this happen. Maybe they were buddies of Lazarus uh, who w and were well-connected in the village. Maybe, um, certainly they would have probably been familiar, as I said a moment ago, with the fact that he was raised from the dead and that Jesus was the one that did this. And these were Jesus' disciples. Perhaps the prospect of just... Uh, having the honor of a distinguished rabbi because Jesus was referred to that way, even by some of his critics, ride on their cult and make use of it. Perhaps it was just, uh, I don't know, indicative of uh, ancient Near East kind of hospitality and somebody was in need and wanted something and, and they were willing to go with it. We don't really know for sure. But I want to say something else that I think may have been possible here, and it's my personal belief, okay, about this, is that these guys had already not just heard about Jesus, but recognized him for who he was and received him as Lord. Now, that's just my personal belief. Uh, I can't, you know, verify that from Scripture. It's just my take based on and inferred from what takes place. So that when Jesus' disciples came, it was enough for them to hear them simply say, the Lord needs it, and they said, go, no problem. That infers to me there was some recognition about who Jesus was at the very least, and it's my personal thought that these guys may already have been followers of Jesus. So it was enough just to hear the Lord needs it, and they said, okay, go ahead. What I want you to see this morning, and what I'm going to try and unpackage from this particular story, is that in this simple exchange that took place at the beginning of the process of the triumphal entry, I mean, this is before the triumphal entry actually takes place. Because what Jesus does now is he gets on that little colt, and he rides into Jerusalem, and uh, as we heard from Herb, you know, people not only took their cloaks and put them down in the road, they took palm branches and laid them down in front of him as he came in and shouted, Hosanna, blessed, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. But this particular encounter is the precursor to that. It happens immediately before that takes place. And actually, without this happening, that wouldn't have happened in the way that it did. What I want you to see from this is that this story speaks to us 
And it teaches us something about what it means that the Lord needs and what it means that the Lord wants from us. And how this story actually has application to how we live and relate to Jesus now. It's not just a nice story that we think about that took place 2,000 years ago in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. But that actually we can glean from it something about how we can relate to Jesus now. And the first thing I want you to see this morning that I'm going to submit to you that I believe the Lord wants and needs from us is our willingness to give him what we have. Just simply that. That the Lord needs our willingness to give him what we have. You know, this, these anonymous owners in this uh, story that Luke tells and, and the other gospel writers tell, allowed those disciples of Jesus to take that cult willingly. From what I can see in the text, they asked for no explanation. There was certainly no prevarication. They just simply said, why are you untying that cult? The Lord needs it. Done. And this animal would have been of significance to them. It was a piece of property. It could have been used for working the land or all kinds of things. Now, to us today, that would seem like not something of great significance. To them, at that time, it probably was. I found out this week that in the ancient Near East, gods, with a small g, and kings would ride cults as a representation of kingly authority. Hence, Jesus, in response to Zechariah's prophecy, as the messianic king, the one that Israel was waiting for, rides on this cult in. And what do we hear from the lips of the disciples? This crescendo building of Hosanna and blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. My point simply is this, that these owners had something that was of some value to them. And whatever the degree of value associated with that animal and with that cult, it was something that the Lord needed, something the Lord wanted from them. So let me ask you this. When God asks us to give him something we have, something that may be seemingly quite small, or something, on the other hand, that could be quite large in our lives, how do we respond to that? Whatever it is, for us to respond willingly to his request calls for a devoted attitude. And I want to talk about that for a, a moment this morning. This is why I believe these owners in this story already knew the Lord. Their willingness to give revealed an attitude to me of devotion. They were devoted to Jesus, devoted to the Lord. Giving him what he needed was an expression and a measure to some degree of that devotion. God will not ask you and I for something that we do not have. And he will not ask us for something which belongs to someone else. 
But what he will do is ask us for what we have and what he needs in the moment that he wants it. We may feel at times in life, I don't know about you, but I've been there plenty of times, where I really don't feel like, you know what, I don't have anything really worthwhile right now to give to the Lord. And I'm not talking about engaging in false humility. I'm just saying, being at a point sometimes where you just feel like, I don't have the stuff. I don't have anything worthwhile to give to God right now. But the truth is, we all do, and we all always do, wherever we may be emotionally. Whatever the phase of the journey that we may be in. You know, often the Lord is looking. This is the way that Jesus operates, it seems to me, in the scripture. Often he's not looking for the big things. Now, he might do. He said to the rich young ruler, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the guy said, you're kidding me. Well, he didn't, but his face dropped, it said, and he walked away because he had great wealth. Now, in that case, Jesus said, I want it all. Because that all was a roadblock to him. And he knew that that guy had to let that go. But what I find over and over in scripture is Jesus asking for the small and seemingly inconsequential things that he then does miraculous stuff with. Let me give you just a few examples from scripture. Abel gave the Lord the fruit of the ground. Abram, as he was then, gave the Lord his trust when he let Lot decide where he wanted to settle. And then Abram settled in Canaan. Moses gave the Lord his staff. Rahab gave the Lord a corner of her roof to hide the spies in. Ruth gave the Lord her allegiance when she clung to Naomi instead of going back to her own country. David gave the Lord his slingshot. The widow of Zarephath gave the Lord her food when she offered Elijah the last of her oil and her flour. The poor widow gave the Lord everything, Jesus tells us, when she put two copper coins into the offering at the temple. And lastly, the young boy gave the Lord everything when he gave him five loaves and two fish. So often, God takes the small things or the seemingly small things to us that he needs and he asks us for. And when we give them to him, the Lord multiplies them. The Lord does miraculous things with them. The Lord does things that we don't even perceive that he's going to do with the things that we give to him that we may not esteem as being of that much significance. That's true in all of our lives. The scripture is replete with examples of that. I just gave you a few. In each case that I just recounted to you, these people gave what they had and the Lord used it for his purposes to accomplish his ends. My question to you and to my heart this morning is, what is Jesus asking you to give? And the corollary to that is, what are you willing to give? The second thing that that, uh, the Lord needs from us is our openness to embrace that what we have actually belongs to him. This is a big one. We can get territorial about our stuff. The owners in this story knew that what the Lord wants us to know with our hearts as well as our heads is that everything we have is a gift from him. Everything. 
You have nothing that is not a gift from God. Neither do I. Absolutely everything comes from him that we have received and is an expression of his grace. This means our talents and our time, our resources and our riches, our families and our friendships, our gifts and our gains, our capabilities and our careers. Everything we have is an expression of gifting from God. They've all been given to us by him and entrusted to us by him. Look, Jesus said, and Isaiah reminded us this, this morning when he was leading one of the worship songs and just went into a spontaneous time of worship that every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the, heavenly, from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. But look at the first part of that statement in James. Every good and perfect gift, not just some of them, everyone, comes down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God calls us to steward that which he's given to us. And we've all been given stuff by God. Jesus made this plain when he told a parable, I'm not going to go into it, I'm just going to refer to it briefly, that we refer to as the parable of the talents. Check it out sometime. And stewardship I'm talking about here is more than just money and the quarter tithe. I believe in that, that's part of it, but this is much, much bigger than that. Stewardship means we recognize first and foremost that what we have comes from God and what we have belongs to God. We are stewards. We've been entrusted it. Whether it's our gifts, our abilities, our talents, our families, our spouses, uh, our, our resources, whatever it is. Openness and recognition that all we have belongs to God calls for a faithful attitude. The Bible is clear about that. It says, those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. What God's looking for from us is not an impressive resume of things we've done for him. What he's looking for is faithfulness. He's entrusted things, people, abilities, whatever, to us. And he wants us to steward those things faithfully. To manage those things in a sense, that's another word, that, that word steward can also mean to manage. To manage, to steward, to take care of for God's kingdom purpose for as long as we're here. So here we go then. Metaphorically speaking, each of us has a cult to give to God for his purposes. You with me? Metaphorically speaking, you have a cult that the Lord needs and wants. And in different seasons, that cult might look different than in other seasons. But metaphorically speaking, we're all in that place where we have something that in given seasons and in every season, really, the Lord will need and want from us.
when we give him what we have, he's able to receive what we give and use it not just to co- carry forward his plan and purpose, but to do it in ways often that we don't perceive or couldn't imagine. That's the story of this book and people encountering the living God. That's what he does. That's what he's doing in your life. That's what he's done in your life. That's what he's going to do in your life. Because you are in relationship with him. A relationship of friendship with Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Now we serve him, but... And he is our Lord, but Jesus calls us friends. I love that. So my question then is, what is the cult that God has given you that he wants you to give back to him in faithful service and stewardship simply because you love him? Not because you're trying to get brownie points with God, but simply because you love Jesus. And when you're in a loving friendship with someone, you give. You don't stop to think and calculate. What can I get out of this? That's a contract, not a friendship. When you're in friendship with someone and loving friendship, you give. You remember that glorious story in the Old Testament of Jonathan and David that have this love that the Scripture says surpassing the love of women is the way the scripture puts it they had a love relationship with such that they gave themselves entirely to one another amazing story of friendship remember that jesus told his two disciples whom he sent to get that cult from those owners if when you're untying it someone says to you Why are you doing that? Just say, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Now, some of you may be getting a little bit uncomfortable with this message in the sense that you may be thinking theologically, now, come on, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord doesn't need anything. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Theologically speaking, when I say the Lord needs it, and when Jesus said to the disciples, tell them the Lord needs it, that he really meant that. But theologically, when I say the Lord needs something from you and me, we know that the Lord doesn't need anything from us in the sense that he's deficient or that he's lacking. God is complete in himself. In that sense, he doesn't need us, right? He didn't send Jesus because he needs us in that sense. He sent Jesus to redeem us, which is what 